Well, it's always my joy to bring the word of God to God's people. I've been given this great honor today to share with you a message titled, Faith Granted, in the letter of 2 Peter. Yes, I said 2 Peter. We're not in 1 Peter today. Pastor Nathan and I thought it would be good for me to go through 2 Peter whenever it was my turn to preach. And so the first couple of messages will be centered on our faith. Faith granted, faith supplied, faith certain, and faith stirred. Let's stand for the reading of God's word in 2 Peter. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 4. The word of God says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Amen. You may be seated. That is the word of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Lord God, we thank you for gathering us once again to hear from you in this beautiful text in 2 Peter. Lord, please soften our hearts. Help us to have open ears, Lord, and that we will apply what we learned today, that we will be humbled by this truth. Lord, we pray for the rest of the time, the rest of the fellowship. Be with us. All glory go to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most humbling truths in the Bible is that Christians like us believe in God because of Jesus. If it wasn't for God changing our hearts, we would have never sought after him. When the disciples asked Jesus why he spoke in parables, Jesus said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted to know. And so God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy. He reveals his truth to those whom he has chosen. And when Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Do you remember how Peter answers him? Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so there are countless examples of how God grants to his people. But what can happen is some believers start to be deceived. They listen to false teachers who disagree with this truth. And they start to think, hmm, faith is all about me. They may say something like, I just need to believe more and then God will bless me. They think that faith starts and finishes with them. And they stop relying on the Lord and they forget who gave them faith in the first place. They forget that faith is granted. And so today I want us to wrestle with this truth in 2 Peter. In these first four verses, we will observe a lot that God has granted to his people. We will also notice truths that should silence any false teaching that comes our way. So let's begin in verse 1. I want us to consider how faith is granted. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the key word in this verse is received, 
But before we go there, I want us to remember this author of this letter and how his faith was granted. The text begins, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so Peter identifies himself as a slave of Jesus. He acknowledges who he belongs to. He was once a fisherman, now he's a fisher of men, as Jesus called him to be. And so Peter, starting his letter with bond servant, is a sign of humility. He understands his position before God. He knows his place. God is his master, and Peter is prepared to do as he commands. But we see here that Peter's also an apostle, right? He was sent by Jesus to preach the gospel. He was one of the twelve. And so this letter should be taken very seriously. I mean, he was an eyewitness of Christ and his resurrection. And so this letter is no joke. We need to pay attention to it. His audience, we know, is in danger of being confused by false teachers. And so they need to be reminded of the truth. And one of these truths are that faith is granted. One example of this in Peter's life is that Jesus prayed for his faith not to fail. Listen to Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so Jesus guarded those God the Father had given to him. And so clearly our faith would fail if it wasn't for Jesus. So the first thing I want you to remember is that Peter's faith was granted and that Jesus doesn't let his people lose their faith. He sustains them to the finish line, but not just Peter. Look at verse 1. It continues. The next part says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And so this is the audience of the letter. They are people who are going through suffering, trials, and, and afflictions. And so they too have a faith like Peter. And their faith was also granted. And so all believers, the word there, same kind, are equally privileged. The word received can also be translated obtain or be appointed. And so this word is also used in Luke chapter 1 verse 9 to describe uh, Zechariah, right? The father of John the Baptist when he was chosen by lot. And so it implies a divine choice. You were appointed to receive this faith. And so faith was given to them by God. And this shouldn't shock us. We see this throughout scripture. So I, I want to give you three verses that prove that faith is granted. So let's go to the first one, the more famous one here in Ephesians 2.8. There's some debate with some scholars here about the Greek here. But I think it's crystal clear. Look at Ephesians 2.8. And we will be jumping a lot around the Bible today. So have your Bibles out and ready. Ephesians 2.8 says... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. You've received gifts before, maybe at your birthday or wedding. You didn't work for those gifts. It was given to you. So we see here that faith was given to us. It was granted. Keep going to uh, Philippians 129, uh, the book to your right. Second verse that I want you to consider about this truth that faith is granted. And we're going to see our key word here, granted. Look at verse 29 of Philippians 1. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And so we were granted to believe in Christ. But 
if you notice here, we tend to like the first part of it, but not the second part, um, that we will uh, suffer as well. And so remember, believers, we will be tested. And during these tests, we have the opportunity to have faith in God and bring him glory. The last verse I want you to look at is in 1 Peter. So this third verse here that I believe highlights that faith is granted is in 1 Peter verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so how are we born again? It's by his mercy. His great mercy has caused us to be born again. It doesn't get clearer than that. But you're going to have some that will argue Faith isn't a gift. Faith isn't granted. God wouldn't be fair if he allowed such a thing. My response to that is, if you want God to be fair on your own terms, none of us would have faith because none of us would have sought after God. He would have been completely just to send us all to hell, yet that was not his will. He chooses to save a people for himself. If you just look at verse 1 of 1 Peter, at the end of there, when Peter's introducing those he's speaking to, it says, those who are chosen... So yes, God has chose a people for himself. And we need to remember that he is God and we're not. So we know that God grants faith, right? That's the first point there. The next question is, how does he do it? 2 Peter 1 continues. So you can go back there. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is how Peter, James, John, Mary, Abraham, Rahab, you, me, the list goes on. This is how we know that faith is granted. It's by the righteousness of Christ. If you have the mindset that faith is all about you, this verse should settle it. Without the righteousness of Christ, you have no faith. And I want us to look at Romans. You can go to the book of Romans, chapter 3 here. Just notice... The righteousness of God in verse 22, Romans 3. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. There we go again with the gifting of God by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And notice here in verse 25 how God can still be righteous yet give us faith. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so because of his righteousness, we can have faith. One last observation that we need to make mention of this verse in 2 Peter 1 is the deity of Christ. And so we know that false teachers, they tend to put Jesus at the equal status of angels or prophets. But in 2 Peter, we shouldn't overlook that Jesus is called God. What does the text say? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even the word Savior points to his deity. Savior is one of the great names of God in the Old Testament. 
Peter is, in fact, boldly taking the Old Testament name for Yahweh and applying it to Jesus, just as he did in the sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.21. And so not only are we going to hear from people that say, well, faith isn't granted, you're going to also hear some cults say, well, Jesus isn't God. 2 Peter 1 is a great verse to use when they come your way. But I want to give you a couple more verses. Um, there's plenty on the deity of Christ. I want to give you three. So turn to John chapter 1. This one is um, well known. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Okay, who's the Word? If you keep going to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word is Jesus. So you can read that. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, God the Father, and Jesus was God. Yet, we know many Jehovah Witnesses would argue, no, no, no. Uh, the Greek says a God. But, of course, they're, they don't even know the Greek. Continue, Colossians 1. Colossians 1. It's good to have these verses in mind. Because there are many people that don't believe Jesus is God. But you can show them in scripture that Jesus is God. Colossians 1, and if you notice, it's John 1, Colossians 1, and then Hebrews 1. So that will help you remember it. Colossians 1, verse 15. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And you'll have some Jehovah's Witnesses that say, well, verse 15 says he's the firstborn of all creation, so he's a created being. But look at verse uh, 17. He is before all things. Uh, and so nothing came to existence without him. And so Jesus is obviously the creator. And the word firstborn is not talking about literally being born first. It's, it's talking about his preeminence. He is um, so important compared to all other things. One more, Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, chapter 1. I think this one's really clear. Um, you have to do some gymnastics to get out of this truth. Hebrews 1, uh, verse 3. And he, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on, on high. And then look here at verse 8. But the Son, he says, all right, this is talking about Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And there we have God the Father calling his son, God. And if you keep going in verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. All right, so we understand the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right? And so Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And so we need to know these verses. If, let's say, a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on, the, on your door, and they're going to say, well, Jesus is like God the Father. He's like a God but he's not to be worshipped since he's just a created being. And so we know that they twist the scripture. Our task is to uphold the scripture. And so far, we discuss the importance of the deity of Christ, 
how faith is granted to Peter and all believers. But faith isn't the only thing granted to us. All right, so this is the second point. Look at verse 2 of 2 Peter. What else is granted to us? Verse 2 of 2 Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so here we see an example of how grace and peace are also granted to us. Peter is praying for his audience to be increased or multiplied in God's grace and peace, and specifically in the knowledge of God and Jesus, their Lord. And so a simple question we can ask is, why is Peter praying? If faith is all about us and our effort, like the false teachers say, why do we need to pray? We pray because we need God. Only he can grant us what we need, and we can't grow in our faith without him. And so he started our faith, and he will cause it to grow. And so we need his grace and peace. And we know God gives us his grace. So I, I want to give you two verses about this, of how God gives grace. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Uh, chapter 9, verse 8. It says, And God is able... To make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And so we see that God surely supplies with his grace. If you know James chapter 4 verse 6, God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. He gives a greater grace. And so we know God is a God who gives grace. But what about peace? Philippians 4 uh, chapter 6 he tells us there, uh, Paul's telling us to pray and, and acts with every petition and thanksgiving. And, and, and so he will give you this peace that is um, beyond comprehension. It's just this amazing peace of God if you pray. Uh, you know, maybe you've been through a trial and, and you're asking the Lord, please, Lord, help me. Help me in this trial. And he gives you this peace about it. That's, that's the Lord blessing you with his peace. And then one more, and I think this one's key for us. Look at 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 3, verse 16. Here we have our key word again, granted. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. And so we see here Paul ending the letter with that prayer. And, and we need that. We need God's peace daily. And so we know in his first letter in uh, 1 Peter, Peter prayed that grace and peace be theirs in the fullest measure, right? So he's prayed this before. We also know that Paul, if you read uh, many of his epistles, what does he start off with? A prayer of grace and peace to you. John, in his second letter, also states how grace mercy and peace will be with us from God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember that we are sheep. We are needy. We need a shepherd to guide us. We need to know the good shepherd. And that is why Peter says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So given the context of false doctrine, Peter wants his audience to have the right understanding of knowledge. Knowledge is a major theme in this book, and we know a lot of people um, 
that were in false teaching, they made a big fuss about knowledge. Yo, you just got to be, you know, you got to know everything about this um, category and, and this teaching. But we know that Peter has the right mindset about knowledge. And so he uses a word that people during his time were using in the wrong sense. And so it appears eight times in the book of 2 Peter. So our next question is, how can we grow in our faith? We know that God grants growth through the knowledge of his son. A deeper knowledge of the person of Jesus is the surest safeguard against false doctrine. There are many that teach a false knowledge of God. For example, the religious Jews during the early church, we know Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And so there are people who think they're doing the right thing in their hearts, but they're going against God's will. And that is why it's so important that we need to know the truth before we try to teach to others. And so Peter wants his audience to know the truth. Jesus is the truth. Knowing Christ has wonderful benefits, and we will examine those in the next verses. But for now, let's remember that our faith was granted, that grace and peace are granted to us, and that's more than we can imagine already. But God has given us so much, and it doesn't end there. Let's continue to verse 3 of Second Peter. What else does God grant? Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so Peter mentioned, if, if we see here the word uh, for power, he's mentioned this before in his first letter in verse 5. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so God's power is no small matter. His power is great. It's because of his power that he can grant so much. And so the text says that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so the believer doesn't grow in their faith by their own power. They need God's power. So the last question we answered was, how can our faith grow? The answer was the knowledge of Christ. The question we're presented here is, has God provided with everything we need to grow in our faith? And the answer is a 1,000% yes. He has granted us everything we need. We have no excuse in our Christian walk to be slothful or unholy. And the main reason is because God has given us the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. In his first letter, Peter mentioned the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so the spirit of truth, he's the one that guides us in all the truth. He is the spirit of God that gives us life. And that is why we put to death the deeds of the flesh. He is the one who intercedes for us when we do not know how to pray as we should. When we walk by the spirit, we will see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our lives. And Paul said to the Thessalonians that God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so the issue isn't that God hasn't given us what we need to live holy. We know that he's granted us everything we need to live a God-honoring life. The issue is when believers 
tend to think they don't need to walk by the Spirit. They start to think, hmm, I can live a godly life without praying and getting to know Christ through his word. They become foolish in their thinking and forget all that God has granted them. They forget who called them. Look at the second part of verse 3 in 2 Peter. It says, Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Believers must never forget that God called them to faith. Jesus calls men by his own glory and excellence. And we know these both words, glory and excellence, were used to describe God in Isaiah 42. Another um, point here of how Christ is God. But that doesn't mean um, we know that Peter was an eyewitness to his majesty. And that doesn't mean that we can't experience the glory of Christ through his word. We can. Right? We know that we can experience the glory of Christ. And the more we read about his perfect life and all that he's accomplished, the more we should be amazed when we go before his throne of grace. We sinners, like us, get to come before the God who sent his son to sacrifice himself for us and, and who was completely obedient to the will of God the Father. And so that should cause us to rejoice. So believers, yes, all believers can behold the glory of Christ through the eyes of faith. And we know that he is listening to us when we pray. We know he's even here gathered with us where two or three are gathered. And so we love him even though we have not seen him. And so the next question for us to tackle is, what does it mean for our faith to be called by his glory and excellence? What does that mean for us? It means we should be people that take this calling seriously. I want us to look at a couple verses here about this calling, right? We see that in verse 3. So 1 Thessalonians 2. We're talking about the calling of God. And we see here Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. About this calling. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. So that what? You would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So you've been called to the kingdom of God and his glory. We ought to walk worthy of that. If I told you I was a police officer and I broke the law every day, what would you think of me? What hypocrite! Beloved, if you say you have been called by God, your lives should show it. Paul in Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The next verse about God's calling I want you to look at is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to 13 to 15. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren... So what? We've been called. What do we do? Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter 
from us. And so God's calling will lead to our sanctification and future glorification. It should motivate us to hold to the word of truth every day we're on this earth. Earlier in this letter, Paul states, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I have one more verse about God's calling. 2 Timothy 1, and I think this one's the best one here. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 9. We're called by God. What should our response be? Verse 8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So God has called us with a holy calling. So let's be holy. Notice the ending of the verse. It should remind us of the key word, right? Granted. The calling was according to his purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ. So it wasn't by our works. This should humble us and make us appreciate the God we serve. And so far, we have discussed that God has granted faith, grace, peace. He's also granted everything we need uh, for life and godliness. And so this should be enough, right? It should satisfy us. But wait, there's more. We got to stop putting God in a box. He gifts his children the gifts to his children just overflow. Maybe picture Niagara Falls. It's like trying to count the stars or the sand on a seashore. We know that every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so we have more that God has granted us. Our last verse in 2 Peter, verse 4. We observe that he has also granted us his precious and magnificent promises. Let's read verse 4 again. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so through the glory and excellence of Christ, we have been greatly blessed. We are promised a share in his moral excellence during this life and in glory in eternity. And so I want you to consider what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, and then we're going to look at uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Talking about just the blessing of Christ, because of that blessing, um, we have so much. So look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 1 here. If you got it, say amen. All right, cool. It says, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just like as God said. Remember, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And look what it says here. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, right? We're called to be holy. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And look at here, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, these great promises that God would dwell within us, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
right? What, what should we do with these promises of God? Well, we, should, we should be holy, knowing that God is with us. You know, I think about uh, when you're by yourself, you know, you're in a dark room by yourself, about to go to sleep. God's with you there. You know, you, you might be tempted to sin. You might think, oh, it's just me. I'm by myself. No, God is with you in that room. He's with you wherever you go. And so you need to be holy. And this brings us to our last question. When does salvation begin? When does salvation begin? I want us to think about this. When we placed our faith in Christ. So we can rejoice even today. Eternal life is to know Christ. And if you know him, then the process of salvation has already begun. You have the spirit of God in you. He will never depart from you. You are being sanctified. The book of Hebrews tells us, for by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so when we can have this hope that one day, yes, we will be glorified. Paul in the book of Romans says, those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We have been granted this great privilege to become partakers of the divine nature. We will share in the moral excellence that belongs to God. And that this doesn't mean when you read, we're going to be partakers of the divine nature. It doesn't mean we're going to become gods like Mormons teach. Another false teaching that can get, you know, people can get from this text is that, um, well, you can actually be perfect on earth since you're partakers of the divine nature. Some denominations believe in this thing called entire sanctification or Christian perfectionism. This doctrine of sinless perfection teaches that a Christian can reach such a state of holiness that he or she ceases to sin in this life. They argue that, well, God gives the believer the second blessing of the Spirit. According to the holiness movement, the second blessing seals the believer in a sinless state. But that's not what Paul, uh, Peter is teaching here. Instead, Peter maintained that believers will share in the moral qualities of Christ. And we see in 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 to 9, um, if you say that um, you believe in him, you're going to walk as he has walked. Right? We're going to see a change, transformation of life in you. And so this text, talking about the divine nature, is you're going to be more conformed into the image of Christ. And this should also remind us of that already not yet tension in our salvation. Yes, we are saints, but we're also sinners. Yes, we are saved. Uh, we've been forgiven of all our sins, but we still long for the day when all things will be made new and will be saved from this world of sin. 1 John 3, 2 states, We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. In the meantime, we long to be conformed into the image of Christ. And we ought to want to grow in our faith and bring glory to God. And so this brings us to our last part in 2 Peter. If you read there, it says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so what else has God granted? He has granted us freedom from sin. We can experience victory over sin presently. Paul in Romans 8, 18 says, having been freed from sin you have become slaves of righteousness. And we will experience complete victory over sin in the future at the return of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. Oh, death, where is your sting? 
right? We see there is victory because of Christ. And when we're resurrected in this new incorruptible body, we're not going to be able to sin no more, right? It's going to be a glorified state. And so believers have already escaped the corruption of the world, but the completion of that process will occur at the day of the Lord. It's an already not yet tension we live in. So we need to be patient, but at the same time persistent in living holy lives. And I want us to take note of the order of living a holy life according to 2 Peter verse 4. Because many false teachers tend to emphasize, you got to do good works, good works, good works. But they don't talk about fleeing sin. But what do we see here? We understand that fleeing sin is the first step of living a holy life. We participate in the divine nature only after we have escaped or turned our backs on the lust of the world. And so I like how Elijah Hoffman um, explains it in this hymn. So I want you to listen to the lyrics of this hymn called, I've Turned My Back Upon the World. I've turned my back upon the world with all its idle pleasures and set my heart on better things, on higher, holier treasures. No more its glittering glare and vanity shall blind me. I've crossed the separating line and left the world behind me. I've left the old, sad life of sin, its follies all forsaken. I'm standing, my standing place is now in crisis, holy vows I've taken. Beneath the standard of the cross, the world henceforth shall find me. I've placed, I've passed in Christ from death to life and left the world behind me. And last stanza. My soul shall never return again back to its former station, for here alone is perfect peace and rest from condemnation. I've made exchange of masters now. The, the vows, vows of glory bind me, and once for all, I've left the world. Yes, left the world behind me, far, far behind me, far, far behind me. So have you left the world behind? Have you left the world behind you? By uh, the world, what is Peter talking about? He's talking about a society that rebels against God. Peter tells them that there is a way of escape from this corruption of the world. It's through Christ. When God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, what happened? We became a part of God's family. We left that corrupt world of sin, and now we possess precious promises. That is the basis for the imperative in verse 5, where we're told, you need to grow in your faith. And so we must become in practice what we already are in God's sight. And beloved, we know that's not easy. We're not of this world, but we're still in this world. And sometimes we allow the world to stain us. We begin to forget that the world will never satisfy us. And so we need constant reminders that the world is not our friend. James puts it this way, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so we do not belong to the world. We belong to the God who grants faith, peace, grace, everything pertaining to life and godliness and his precious and magnificent promises. He gave us his son so we can have life. Paul in Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so God, God has granted us so much how will we respond? I want to suggest two ways we can respond. The first one is by humbly submitting to the will of God. God has granted justification, sanctification, and glorification. Let that sink in for a bit. 
God has been active in all aspects of our salvation. And so we must never forget his calling to holiness. He has saved us from this world. So let's, let's stop acting like this world. We need to humble ourselves before him daily. We must seek to get to know him more and more. And this should take up a lot of our time. Don't neglect your time with Jesus. Read his word and cherish what you learn. Submit to the commands of his word and be godly. The other way we can respond is by humbly serving his people. God has given us so much, how can we not give to others? We should seek to help those in need. Rather than being selfish and looking at people to get something out of them, we should look to their interests. So ask people around you, how can I help you? Christ laid down his life for us. He did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. And so may we have that same attitude of humility. May we acknowledge that everything we have comes from God. May we give with cheerful hearts. May we be generous. In conclusion, we learn that God grants faith and everything else we need to grow in our faith, so we have no excuse to not grow in our faith. We should be motivated by this truth to live holy lives, and we should rejoice like the lame beggar in Acts 3 when he was healed. Peter told him, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do give you, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazarene. Walk. And what happens? With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, and he walked and leaped and praised God. What I really like about this story is how Peter responds to the people who are just amazed and gazing at him like it was his own power that made him walk. What does Peter do? He points them to Jesus. He says, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect help in the presence of you all. God granted healing that day to take place. But it goes deeper than that. God grants the faith 